So you're running a podcast, A Time to Stand. Correct. And it, uh, and you're doing some of this wonderful um, work uh, regarding uh, exposing what's going on in education. Correct. But you weren't always doing that. Mm-hmm. Something made you start. The moment that started it all was finding out that the principal was doing this new mindfulness mm. meditation oh. type program at the end of lunch. And a friend had actually just approached me and said, hey, are you, have you seen this new thing the principal's doing where he's donging on a bell while all of the students sit, the entire student body across, you know, the whole um, playground? And, and I said, no, my kids haven't mentioned this and I'm not aware of it. And in the midst of trying to find out what this was and then meeting with the principal and doing research, that really started this whole journey. I had never heard of social emotional learning before. Uh, There was a whole um, learning curve for me in the midst of this journey, but that's really what started it all. I had seen little bits and pieces along the way as, as I volunteered at school, but that really started it all because I had, I had seen a shift. This was the same school district that I grew up in. Oh, okay. And yeah. So Small you went off to college and got married, had kids, and then you come back to school. So you, you took a bit of a break and you come back and something's different. Right. Incredibly different. Okay. Yeah. In what way? Well, I mean, the, for example, um, I would say some of the, some of the new programs in, in elementary school were very politicized. And these are things that I did not witness or experience when I was in elementary school myself, whether it was scholastic mailers that had, you know, one political slant to them and content that the kids were being taught in class, or it was the school library and highlighting certain literature with a political slant. All of that was changed because I remember talking politics on campus when I was in high school, but not not in first, second, third grade. Mm -hmm. And then the social emotional learning, that was a new concept for me. I had never heard of it. I didn't know why it was being implemented. I was told that it was basically because the kids were facing more challenges nowadays and that the school decided to confront these challenges by educating the whole child. And that was the first time I had heard that phrase. And I remember being confused because I even said to the principal, when we were squirrely after lunch recess and really hyper after after that time, the teachers would take us back to class and that's when we would do a mock spelling bee or we would play heads up seven up. We might listen to music or the teacher might play a guitar, something like that, and or read us a book. That was the time of day. Sometimes they let us bring out our scented markers. There was all kinds of mechanisms that teachers used when I was in school to help the class calm down and focus and get back on track with learning. But mm-hmm. 
this social emotional learning program was completely different. And I remember the principal first telling me about a program called the tapping solution. And that's what I first researched. The kids would go to bed. I would stay up until one, two, and three in the morning researching and reading. With the tapping what method? Solution. Solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that the, uh, isn't there one therapy where there's like a tap therapy or? Yeah, it's called the emotional freedom technique. It was initially started by um, a man named Gary Craig. And some of these similar beliefs um, that are rooted in what is said to be pseudoscience uh, have the belief system of energy chakras and the students are instructed to tap on those energy meridians on their face and then say phrases, affirming phrases about their self, themselves. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, just for perspective, you don't have to answer this if it's uh, something you want to keep off of your work. But do you, do you have a, a religious uh, upbringing or practice? Are you coming from a certain... Um, point of view religiously um, or are you kind of like non-religious and you don't I'm have a Christian. To okay. So you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, like it just would make sense that you're kind of aware of these uh, religious themes. You're like, wait, do, does that belong in school? Yeah. Did you try doing some of this chakra stuff and experience your energy shift or anything like that? No, no, I did not. But I did, I I did want to learn as much as I could about this before I formed any opinion. So that's why I stayed up reading. I learned about Gary Craig. And then I also saw the way that sometimes uh, the Buddhist meta prayer incorporates this tapping in their um, belief system. And it was a really interesting, I I mean, I talked with, um, someone from a Buddhist temple. I talked to a woman who is Hindu from Nepal. I spoke to a store owner of a new age store who sold these Buddhist singing bowls that the principal was using with our children and the whole student body. And all of this was to kind of comprehend this intersection between these beliefs and how this was being practiced at school and why all of this. It was many question marks. Yeah. Hmm? What is the why? 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 Well, you know, and I personally think that they, I think there's a lot of people that do believe that they're helping kids. There's, there's some who believe that they're calming kids down, but at the same time, perhaps many of them have not done their research and they're not fully aware of the origins of social emotional learning Maybe they're not fully familiar with the castle organization, um, the the start and the beliefs. And then also, I know people have told me, this is a great program. It helps our kids calm down. They're learning tools for, you know, how to center themselves. And in the midst of that, people aren't realizing that this is very much like a a system that's designed to start in one place and progress to another direction. And Mm -hmm. it keeps progressing forward. Mm -hmm. But even so when a school district, which serves the public is engaging in these types of activities for people who have all different kinds of religious beliefs, and there's atheists as well, 
adopting these, what, that was one of the things I actually explained to one of the school staff. I said, there's a reason why you don't bring a Ouija board for the kids to play with in class, because there's known to be a belief that it's got a spiritual element to it. And so it's important for, you know, people to be aware of what their kids are doing in the school day. Mm-hmm. And it was this, this particularly was interesting to me because one of the things, once we opted our kids out of this program, I remember first it was our oldest that we opted out. And one of his teachers said to him while, while he was opted out, you know, what do you do in your religious belief? You know, do you guys read the Bible? And, you know, he's little and he nods his head And she said, well, maybe bring that and read that while you're opted out. And to me, that was very indicative of the fact that this teacher is suggesting an alternative, which is equivalent. And that was key because obviously it's not some, you know, just calming mechanism. There's, there's more to it than that. And the teachers were aware. Okay. Um, and we, we can get into that. I'm just want to say it might be the case. This is a huge philosophical question. It might be the case that there is no such thing as a neutral organization that it's always going to have a belief. It seems like we lived under the assumption from the nineties, our generation, we thought we could just have these neutral organizations of the state just doing things Mm -hmm. and they are non-religious. You know, we took prayer out of the school because we decided that that was not proper. Now the prayer's back it seems like. And they are more to less aware that that is what it is, at least with that one anecdote about uh, your son's teacher suggesting that. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing that I'm thinking is that if they are deriving all these techniques from these different religious um, sources and scrubbing them of the religion uh, or at least the lingo or the profession of some sort of spiritual theological belief. They're just using the methods. I don't know if it's possible to just extract the method from a religion and to not actually transfer something else. I mean, in Christianity's case, it would be impossible to take the Eucharist out of Christianity and just use that as a social emotional tool for community building, I guess you would say it would still have like very fundamental property um, to it. But with regard to these spiritual practices, um, so their justification is that it's calming kids down. It's centering them. Is that like making them the center of the universe or calming them, grounding them? That's what I still am not sure of. I mean, it, it definitely, what happened first was I began researching that tapping solution. And then when I came back to meet with the principal to share my concerns, he actually told me, oh, I misspoke. That's the program I brought to the middle school. But what we're planning to bring here is mind up curriculum. And I was told that this was based in neuroscience, that this was tied to the actress Goldie Hawn. And yeah. What, what does that have to do with anything? Okay. I don't know. Shirley, it's not um, Shirley MacLaine, at least. It's Goldie Hawn <laughs> and her regiment. Right. Um, and then the, I was also told that it did tend to favor Buddhism. 
And basically teachers receive their own small Buddhist singing bowl. And typically after going through training in that program, they would then, depending on the school day, they may have the students meditate in the lotus position so many times during a school day. Hmm. Okay. And, and I was also told that the goal was to have the students empty their mind so that they could be receiving or that they could calm themselves down. And that was also very, all of these things for me were red flags of, Wow. and I will just say, these are just some of the changes that had happened since I had been there. Okay. um, I understand the emptying of the mind and the becoming receptive part. Mm-hmm. Not with children, though. That is a advanced. Uh, that is a advanced. Somebody with with an ego is already enmeshed in a culture uh, that is. They they're very explicitly bringing these children to a state of of emotional uh, manipulation, and and the kids aren't even defined yet. The kids kids are not supposed to do this unless it's a part of a tradition um, that their parents are involved in. So that that's just. Yeah. Red flag is putting it lightly. That's intense. Yeah. And not only that, but under social emotional learnings umbrella, so to speak, so much can enter in. And that's what I learned. Mm -hmm. I -hmm. learned that it was not just this one program in school. It was also making its way into a variety of programs. Here, I was told by some teachers, you need to download the app Class Dojo. And it's a communication app so that we can keep in contact with you. Okay, fine. I'll download the app. But then later I found out that Class Dojo is related to mindfulness and social emotional learning. And there's other sides of that program that do data tracking. And then there's not only that, but there's videos and cartoons that the teacher was showing our younger child in class. One was called Taming the Beast. And... In the midst of that, I also, I mean, that's a whole rabbit trail in and of itself, but this, this also, (laughs) there's so much here. We had our kids opted out, for example. I remember the kids coming to me and saying, we had so much fun today. When we were opted out, we got to run around and play, which typically they were in the school office seated there or something like that. And I said, you got to run around where? And they said, oh, we were in the front of the school by the sign, which is technically off campus. So according to our children, they weren't even being supervised. So we had to then, with the opt-out, ensure that our kids were being supervised by adults, you know, which seems like a no-brainer. Wait, wait, hold on. So they didn't automatically provide child care? That is a violation of what they're there to do, like... Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I guess everybody was just kind of like floating on cloud nine. They just let the kids go. Yeah. And another thing that happened was um, in the midst of having to have them opted out, it was in a separate area and then an adult had to supervise them. Yeah. And then from one school year to the next, I remember the opt out not being honored and the kids telling me, Hey, we're being told that we have to go back to this program and we tried to explain it to the school, you know, whoever it was, the staff member that we are opted out. And they said, no, you need to go to this. 
So then again, another situation, a new school year, we had to then go through the whole process again of ensuring okay. the kids are opted out. They have adult supervision. <sighs> so this, I just have to mention this in passing that that app potentially is just tracking you all the time. Where, where, where your family's going, how, how often they're watching, which, how much they watch, maybe even like biometric data, um, who knows, like where that can go. That's just like, okay. So it, it's, it's total, it's total, it's a totalizing philosophy and it's going to use all the tech, technological powers that it has to envelop the entire child from womb to tomb kind of thing. It sounds like, do yeah. you have contacts with other parents? Have you, uh, shared your knowledge and, and brought attention through the parent teacher association or mom's club well, or something. We ended up at the time we were talking with other parents and some parents in our County and our community were receptive, but this was going back to 2016. Some of it in 2017, mm-hmm. a lot of the people I spoke with, who I thought may be concerned, were not concerned. Oh, you know, it's no big deal. That's just, you know, public school. We expect it to be that way. Hmm. Um, there was not much urgency or concern. And I think it is hard because many people blindly trust the school system with their children. There's not a lot of scrutiny in the public schools. And the sad thing that I found, and and yes, I have spoken to a lot of parents and It didn't just stay at social emotional learning. There's other topics. But the sad thing is this. I've noticed that parents will be more scrutinizing in their shopping, for example, of a birthday gift for their child in reading the reviews and reading what's the best model. And they'll spend more time and energy into something like that than they even will be looking into what's happening to their at their child's school. Mm-hmm. Maybe and even the, they, they could probably translate to the food too. I'm sure parents are generally more concerned about the food that the child is putting in their body than the ideas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I I've hosted a couple of events in my area and definitely I would say not so much social emotional learning, but once once we had learned that sex education had changed in the state of California, hmm. that started to wake more people up. Okay. Yeah. That seems to be the flashpoint with other parents that I've spoken to specifically uh, in California. Is that way? What is going on over there? One of your most recent points uh, or posts on Twitter was uh, divulging this uh, racial equity justice that's being centered in sex education. Um so what, 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 what does that have to do with one thing or another? Um, but we know that there's a totalizing ideology that uses and swaps words and stuff. And one thing interesting about social emotional learning is that those three words put together don't mean anything. It's so vague. So what is it? I still, I, I've spoken, I've interviewed people who've researched this and I always forget. I think the language itself is designed to just kind of melt in your head and not really be something that you can point at. So what is social emotional learning so far as you've been able to discover? From what I found, it is a program that appears highly driven by data collection. It is a program for the government to parent the child and tell the child 
the way that they are to think and to mold and shape their their thinking ultimately and their emotions mm-hmm. and then so their behavior a, their behavior how they respond their, to the social environment how they interact yes. with each other yeah right and i would say it goes further than that developing it it steers them in a direction of conformity one of the one of the public records requests i did was on an elementary school for social emotional learning and one of the slides to train staff said to shift from I to we. And it also talked about social justice movements. It also talked about developing the um, identity. And I think all of these traits are very alarming when you consider that now it is the, the government's message telling and instructing a child and preparing their mind, emptying their mind to receive whatever it is that will be coming into their mind next in another lesson Mm -hmm. and shaping them, them shaping them. Because I, I often believe that sometimes, I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule, but that input can often equate to output. What you feed tends to grow. And so, you know, sometimes in the sense of, constant messaging. This is why, you know, there's, there's all different kinds of examples that we can think of, but continuous messaging, repetitious, this is why people use chants, like those chants in ethnic studies to the Aztec gods. Chants are a way to influence somebody and their memory, and it's ingrained in their mind. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I believe that that this is to shape that, but it's also to create a vision, I believe, for uh, transformation, which is a loaded term, mm-hmm. and social justice activism. Liberation. Mm-hmm. So if the government's doing that, um, one would suppose that it's trying to create a docile populace, but also within uh, the social justice aspects of this, that's a very contentious ideology. It's group against group. And it's about reparations on a, not just uh, monetary, but moral and uh, seceding of the moral authority, rearranging the moral authority, putting the moral authority outside of the individual's consciousness into this mechanism of justice that's outside of them and that dominates every single interaction specifically between racial groups um but also between the sexes and also between just different socioeconomic classes so it seems like at one on one hand they want a completely docile populace that they can mold in the image of whatever they want but on the other hand they want the populace to always be fractured against itself both at once a collective very collectivist in its thinking but always like inter uh, you know like all all the different um, differences are pronounced in the intersectionality so they'll be docile on one hand and then also like concentrating on you know tensions uh, so that they can be distracted. I don't know. It just, it sounds very sinister. It might be, it might not be. Maybe, maybe this is a good thing. Have, 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 have you spoken with somebody who believes in this stuff and what is their uh, point of view? Those who I've talked with that believe in this believe primarily that this is a way to give children tools to cope with life. And that it is only, that's actually 
the direction that the school district our children were in ended up, they, they started using, I believe it's dovetail learning and it's called toolbox. And many of the people that believe in this program and other SEL programs believe that it is solely for uh, helping a child cope with stress and difficulties and challenges. So you have a play, playground conflict or you're having a conflict at home with a sibling, well, now you pull out your tools in your toolbox and you use what you were learning at school in your, in your SEL program to calm yourself down and according to what I was told, center themselves. Okay, to center themselves and then enact some sort mm -hmm. of restorative justice or some sort of uh, conflict re resolution protocol. What is the yeah. content of that conflict resolution protocol? Have you seen this practiced or seen um, uh, seminars or uh, even uh, PowerPoints about how this is to occur? Well, I know as far as restorative justice programs, the schools are now at that phase in our region where before it was a lot of this content I've previously talked about, but restorative justice programs and models are being enacted now. And districts are hiring staff based on this and as well as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. So these programs, they're, they, you know, they say they're all about removing the school to prison pipeline is what they say. Mm -hmm. And as far as in practice, uh, it's, it's kind of a unique way of gathering people together. Sometimes they use stuffed animals or a unique stuffed animal and they pass it around and, you know, people are able to speak their truth and it, it you know, it can vary from school to school, but it's, it's an interesting process. Mm -hmm. And the, from what I've seen, some districts are also partnering with outside organizations yeah. to bring a cultural element to that restorative justice model. What does that mean? That would be more tied to groups that may be also groups that promote ethnic studies and, and things like that to bring a more, I would say, uh, some, some cultural heritage is the way it's taught into that restorative justice model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, specific, we, we know that there'll be, there's a hierarchy of cultures. We know that they won't equally mm -hmm. represent everybody because they need to fix the world and make sure that these outcomes are equal at the end. So they're probably going to be paying attention to the statistically behind um, identities. So on the other hand, if you have kids and um, they're they're fighting, um, do you, do, in your house, do you just hand them bats and and give them headgear and say just just duke it out, kids? Like like on the other side of this restorative justice thing is like uh, another thing that we probably would agree is probably not good. But there's some middle ground, right? Uh, I just f for the sake of uh, storytelling, like what growing up or uh, being a mom, how have you taught or learned conflict resolution? What's a, what's your preferred method? I think in, in conflict resolution with, you know, kids, it's very common, you know, they did it and they did it. And, you know, you have to talk it out. You have to get to the facts. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's also important for kids to learn communication and 
being able to communicate in a constructive way. So, I mean, in our home, I've often used when they were younger, teaching kind of a, a, I guess, like a, for example, the kids like Legos and they would play with them a lot when they were little. And I would talk to them about the difference between building up a Lego and versus tearing it down. And we would talk about the ways to work towards a resolution and working things out and listening and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of those things. And taking responsibility. Right. And I would say one of the things that I learned growing up that I've also taught my kids in conflict resolution, it's, it's an old thing. I remember both of my parents saying is I love you more than this argument. And it was just a really endearing way to acknowledge the value of, you know, your sibling or whoever it was. And then, you know, to let them know in the midst of this all, in the midst of this conflict that at the moment seems really intense, Mm -hmm. you know, just to acknowledge that. And, you know, we've talked to the kids too about take a break. If you're really upset, take a break, come back in 10 minutes and talk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. But... Yeah, I'd say at schools, it's a whole different, there's from, from my, you know, purview from looking into this, it seems like nothing is happening without some form of um, agenda behind it. And I would say political agenda. What do you mean by political agenda? I would say um, uh, when we're talking, for example, about social justice or, or driving these messages about Um, you know, even ethnic studies and things like this, it is, it is a political agenda that is rooted in Paolo Freire ideas and this idea of youth voice and um, student activism. And I would say anything that even seems remotely conservative, um, well, that, that has to be teared down. That has to be disregarded Hmm. because, um, it's a symbol know, of oppression or permanence or I, from, from everything I can tell the, the conservative viewpoints are the ones that are just not welcome. Okay. They're not. Yeah. And as far as what they're doing, I mean, in our County, the, the equity model, the equitable math, even the ethnic studies, I mean, our, one of the ethnic studies classes that's already mandated in our county, uh, the sources, for example, are very telling. Um, Antonio Gramsci's prison notebooks is a source. Another source is the Black Panthers 10-point program. Um, other sources in the over 1,600 pages of source documents include Foucault. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Foucault. But Foucault, sorry. That's good. <laughs> Um, and all of these carry with it a, you know, intense political ideology. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. One wonders, um, I, I, I wonder when we're going to start seeing teenagers who have been steeped in this, like, I, I want to see the fruits kind of like hit fast forward, or maybe it's happening. Cause I want to see how kids are going to start to rebel or actually manifest these, uh, these learnings. If it's going to stick, if it's going to hold. I know that um, if you teach kids that their government is evil, 
while the government's teaching them that the government's evil or that history is evil or that the history is steeped in bloodshed, mostly from one race, that, that there's going to be more and more anger and more and more envy and more and more resentment in the young people. I've seen that in college age, but I don't know if we've seen like a generation that has been completely steeped in this. Maybe California um, is going to give us like some novel experiment to see how this stuff actually manifests in mass across society. But um, have you spoken or come across any teenagers who are riffing on this? It's, I guess it's kind of difficult. We're both adults, so it's hard for us to, um, unless we're related to them or uh, see, see them at church. But it's just, I'm wondering, have you seen like the fruits of this SEL stuff and this activist model of education? I have uh, talked with enough parents who have indicated to me that it has caused divisiveness on campus. Okay. Uh, Whether it is students that have put up signs, stop white supremacy, Mm -hmm. and conflicts that have occurred on campuses, students that want signs in teachers' classes, and if the teacher is not willing to put said sign of, um, you know, one movement or another in their class, then that teacher is really pressured by the student body and Hmm. things occur. Um, More students are showing up at school board meetings in groups, and oftentimes they're with a, a teacher, and that teacher will you know, it's not uncommon to see teachers whispering in these kids' ears before they go to the podium. Wow. And it's so, amazing. I'm just, I, I know this is terrible stuff, but it, like, it, it's so powerful. It's just so powerful. It's totalizing. They have shock troops. They have their uh, DEI youth, uh, DEI-larian youth or something like that. They're little shock troops that go and then push the agenda. So they select, they say, I know in the documents, they say that it's going to be student-led, but they select the students who lead. So the students are u- being used as political props to force the agenda. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> the same thing that I've I've noticed and I've said is that they say that they're using this Friarian model and they definitely teach that. However, the the teachers and staff are the ones pushing the political messaging that's theirs and they're really driving and steering the ship. And these kids are simply tools in their hand to accomplish what they want. Mm-hmm. And I've talked with enough teachers who have connections to teachers unions to know that when these unions meet and gather, they are strategizing ways to get students, not not increasing their mathematical knowledge, knowledge, not advancing science or their writing or reading. They're really, truly meeting to strategize. We already know how to activate the adults and the parents, but how do we activate the students and encourage protests from our class? And this is happening. We've seen news stories where kids as young as 10 or even younger are having days where the teacher has them do a whole art assignment. And then they all walk out of their classroom and they're all marching for the cause. And maybe they're in third grade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that cause Mm -hmm. can be racial justice or it can be sexual justice. Mm -hmm. 
during this uh, blessed month that uh, just doesn't want to end. We're half, we're almost halfway through Pride. Um, not that it ever ends, but um, so the teachers are using students as the useful idiots. I suppose, or I would not be surprised to learn that the teachers are being used as useful idiots for powers higher up. Um, there's got to be some sort of dictating principle, whether it's a council of bad guys up there or just this movement, this Marxist, Leninist, Maoist movement that has kind of captured the entire structure of government, because we do see this in other aspects of it. But it seems to be the case that the teachers are selected because um, you can't get through uh, college of education, you can't get your education degree without going through this stuff. And then if you don't follow it to a letter and then mimic it, then you don't get the job. So it's selecting for these very specific teachers. Um, and then the teachers select for very specific students. One wonders like what's going on higher up or how this plays up the chain. But um, I have spoken with government employees or activists on that level. That might not be your purview, but have you come across any any uh, theories on that, on uh, why the government is headed in this direction? Well, I, it, and a lot of this was not on my radar before 2016. I did not pay attention to too much in politics. I always researched who I voted for, things like that. But I was not the person to put any sign on my car or, or in my yard or really follow legislative bills, anything like that. But I And I also had never really known much about the United Nations, for example, or all mm -hmm. of their affiliate groups, whether it's UNFPA, um, you know, UNESCO, another one. And personally, from what I've seen, just looking at websites related to um, that government, global um, organization, is that there's a lot of influence in my opinion, coming from there. Even the California Comprehensive Sexuality Education, hmm. it didn't start in California globally. It started in the United States in California, mm -hmm. but it really started back in the United Nations and UNESCO. And prior to California, it was brought into Canada. And we've that was one area I looked into and examined was Canada because I wanted to see what's going on there before it comes here. And now we're seeing even more progression of what's going on in Canada and what's could be on the way here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, a lot of the guiding documents for comprehensive sexuality education, you can go back to the um, UNESCO. You can go back to IPPF, which is the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Uh, also the World Health Organization. And this, this would have never, ever mm. dawned on me that these global groups, and it, it's, it was foolish of me, but it, it just, it was not in my mind that these global groups could be influencing our country so greatly. So what's this comprehensive sexual stuff? What does that mean? Have you looked into that? Like, what is that about? Yeah. Comprehensive sexuality education 
a, a lot of people are back where their education was in the sense that they think it's still about safety and protection. And we've just added on LGBTQ plus to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. A lot of people believe that, but that's not what's going on. Comprehensive sexuality education is an ideological shift in how we teach sex education. And it is it is not just for older students. It is designed to eventually be mandated in K through 12. So California, it started slowly and that's how things progress. They have to start somewhere. And then the goal is to get it in K through 12. But the ideological change is that it is rooted in pleasure and eroticism. Oh, when okay. we see stories across the U.S. of whether whether it's exposing children to um, a graphic book mm-hmm. or a video from an organization to talk to first graders about masturbation, these topics used to be we we used to regard a boundary between adults and children and teens and have a. Uh, <laughs> just a discernment about what was age appropriate, Mm -hmm. but the terms age appropriate, for example, to many people may mean an entirely different belief to others. Comprehensive sexuality education is about is rooted in pleasure. And that is why a lot of the content then is not just about safety and protection, but how to engage in various sex acts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that pleasure is, uh, I, 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 did a, I did a video not too long ago about this uh, family sex show out in the UK. Um, pretty salacious stuff. It was hilarious. Hilariously inappropriate. But I was looking, I was trying to get to like the, the operating principle under this, you know, they're being really weird and inappropriate, but like, what do they really believe? What are, what are, what are they expressing? What is pleasure for? And pleasure was for self. It's all about the selfish act or, and then, and then like this bartering happens between one person and another through consent, right? It's no longer, I mean, the other way of looking at sexuality is that it is about it, it, it takes place within a relationship. It takes place within a marriage. However you define that relationship, the relationship is absent when we focus on pleasure. It's not about the relationship other than um, being a certain way towards uh, experimentation um, or of, of pleasing and being pleased. But it's not within this is some function that is healthy, dangerous and uh, facilitates marriage, facilitates family. Um, the whole structure of the family actually uh, is, contains and regulates sex in order for the family to exist and then in order for the family members um, to uh, act properly towards each other. But if the school's going into that part of life and with a specific measure uh, uh, or a specific uh, guiding principle of pleasure overall, and also going into behavior, um, conflict resolution, um, going into mindfulness, which is spirituality, and then also going into every what they were supposed to be doing about math and reading and writing and arithmetic and 
history, all of that is now about social justice, too. So the, the entire child is being programmed. Like how they think about math, not even being able to math, how they think about math, how they think about uh, pictures that they see on the internet or, or the bodies that they, they're suddenly attracted to. The entire thing. Mm-hmm. It's total. And it, it removes the idea that you have a child with a developing brain mm-hmm. and it, it removes that idea of those developmental stages and it, hmm. I mean, even the idea of sex positivity, I, when I was looking into what is sex positive, that often involves and embraces the ideas of kink and eroticism, pleasure, mm-hmm. self-love, as you said. And it's also a now a type of pornography. And so hmm. the whole model is changing and it's concerning because there's, you know, where does this lead us to? Well, I, and it, it, yeah. it destroys the family or yeah. it makes the family so complex by introducing all these other aspects to it. It destroys childhood. There's no longer any boundaries right. Right. to mm-hmm. that. So then the child is basically going to start prostituting themselves. I've spoke with a, a mother down in California whose uh, who's daughter's friends are already just treating their body as a commodity and like selling pictures to older men and you know, uh, just turning themselves into that. Cause that's, I don't know if that's what they've been taught or not, but I can see that this stuff, if this is what's happening, this is what it's going to lead to. Right. Well, in the same organization that really promotes and initiates CSE for short, Planned Parenthood is hmm. also believing that sex work is real work. And I'll mm-hmm. never forget It was back, I think, in February of 2020, I was looking into Planned Parenthood and I came across a post on Facebook that said youth sex workers, and it was all about sex work is real work is what the post was. And I remember, you know, posting the link and and screen grabbing the content and saying, you know, when this disappeared, go see this before it disappears. Well, it was edited nine days later. Mm -hmm. And it was edited to say young adult sex workers. Okay. It's what it's was concerning. the content of that, uh, that page? Was it advocacy or like bringing awareness of safety or something like that? Um, a lot of the posts on that particular page, I mean, were um, a lot of this same ideology of comprehensive sexuality education mm-hmm. where they are talking about how to engage in certain activities Mm. and they always say with the messaging of how to engage in this is that they're teaching, you know, kids are going to do these things anyway. So they're going to teach them how to do it pleasurably and safely. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's other content out there. There's other uh, content that's been exposed. For example, of, I remember, I think it's called happy, healthy, and hot. It's a brochure that's often used in other countries and it tells um, young people who are HIV positive that they have a right to disclose if and when they want to disclose their HIV status to their partner. It's something along the lines of that. And this, this idea that they're all about safety, well, if that's really what safety is about, then why does that brochure say that? Um, 
so many questions in my mind about where this is literally going. And then uh, about a year ago, I had a conference and I remember in the midst of researching SEL, uh, learning about critical race theory and critical pedagogy, learning about having learned about comprehensive sexuality education. And then I discovered this whole school, whole community, whole child model, also called WSCC or WISC. I noticed that all of these three topics I had researched, progressing in time and continuing forward, were integrated into one another. And so I actually made a diagram and at the top was social emotional learning of a triangle. And then on the side was CSE, comprehensive sexuality education on another side was CRT. And I put lines going to each of them and trying to explain that all of these are integrated into one another and they all fit into this whisk or whisk model. And that's where that sex education post that I recently shared on Twitter about racial justice, there's an organization called Seekus that says sex ed is a vehicle for social change, but they also have on their website that sex ed is a vehicle for racial justice. And separately, if you go to the CASEL, C-A-S-E-L, that's the social emotional learning website. If you were to type in comprehensive sexuality education, they have a link there. And all of these topics are integrated. And then they are trying to bring them to all grades and mm-hmm. all subjects. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to understand. But this, mm-hmm. this other model, WISC, is highly concerning because a lot of parents I talk with, they're so concerned about the Department of Education. But this is the Center for Disease Control getting involved in education. Mm-hmm. And it was initiated a while ago to join health and education for equity. Yeah. The way mm-hmm. that a lot of these equity governmental offices that then have control over every other governmental office are introduced mm-hmm. into government is through the health department. I don't know why exactly, but I've seen that in Washington and a couple of other states. It's like, for whatever reason, that's where they can smuggle it in. Or that's just how they've decided to advance. But it seems like that's the playbook for everything. And then you have this somewhat are you man-made pandemic happen and the government practices flexing its its muscles of control through the through the same organization that they're using to um, institute total community total ownership over the citizen, total ownership and control over the citizen. Well, and absolutely an erosion of parental rights and erosion of parental involvement, the public school, they want every school to be a community or healthy school. And that becomes the nucleus of every community. Then they collaborate with other community organizations. And the whole design is to have a health clinic, a dental office, and a psychological or a psychology office on campus offering those services. And then the concern I have is you have an, an intersection, I believe, of two agendas that I believe by design, maybe, maybe by design, will intersect where you have an establishment of a gender affirmative only model for youth that is sweeping the nation right now, the push for that. 
And then eventually these health clinics and psychology offices for mental health and uh, reproductive health and things like that on school campuses. That's a concern because I remember getting a program provided to me from the California Teachers Association. It was their State Council of Education notes from their June 2019 meeting. And right in there, it states that they want to start advocating for students to be able to receive gender affirmative hormone therapy without the barrier of parental permission. And what I noticed when I looked on the CDC's website for these community schools is their health clinic, which is interactive, like a video game. You can actually go into each room and you can touch on different furniture and it pops up in the forefront of the screen, but there was a cabinet. And when you click it, it says medical records. So imagine if all the medical records for the child are now at the school and the healthcare is at the school. This is a socialized model. And then what do you mean socialized model? I mean, socialism. Okay. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Everything in the state of the state for the state by the state, um, which is technically fascism. But um, and they have these apps that they're going to be tracking the kids every movement and probably biometric Mm -hmm. data. too, with watches, smart watches and stuff like that. Um, one would even argue they might be able to put chips in people, but that's a little far down the road. That's still a conspiracy theory. Give it three or four more years, but like it's, uh, it's totalizing. This is totalizing and all through the state. It's yeah. And I wonder what's going to happen in the future with private schools or charter schools or homeschooling in recent years, we've already seen messaging about eliminating homeschooling. Will they in the future say that homeschooling and these other educational alternatives are not equitable? Perhaps. I Mm. wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, either not equitable or, you know, a a mark of a fascist, a mark of some sort of degenerate, um, you know, which the messaging is coming. The political messaging is is also totalizing. Right. And they have a complete hegemonic control over our media, too. It's wonderful. They have our schools. They have our media. It's wonderful. How do they do it? It's amazing. Well, and yeah, that's a whole other thing. The control that they have. What happens when parents go to a school board meeting to address their concerns is they're often met with a whole group of teachers union activists and allies. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that happens, I remember this when I was going with various people to one school board meeting, the school board decided that the students were going to be able to speak first. So basically all the students went to the mic, went to the mic. And it was very clear uh, to me that things were not, I mean, they were encouraging civic engagement of students Mm -hmm. while discouraging civic engagement of adults, tax paying Mm -hmm. adults. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying that in an email, you're, you know, to one of, I think it was a superintendent, I had stated, you know, don't you want, if your school is promoting civic engagement to your students and your school wants them to speak at city council meetings or school board meetings, then don't you also want that for the adults or is it just the kids? 
Any response? No response. Hmm. Wow. Scary stuff. So, um, you have a podcast. Are you, are you, uh, a lone gun out there? Do you have uh, a network that you're plugged into? Are you working with other people? Are there other organizations that you would recommend for people who are as alarmed as you are and want to, um, try to slow or stop this Leviathan? Well, um, I have connected with a lot of people in the state of California. I've connected with people around the U.S. I do think it's important, one, to get as much information as people can and learn how to have those conversations that don't sound, you know, alarmist to people, because I think meeting somebody who doesn't agree with you and just being able to talk about the issues calmly and factually is good without embellishment or changing stories around. I think it's really important people get their facts right and learn all they can. Um, As far as my podcast goes, I started that because I was getting a lot of messages from parents all over that were asking questions and needing help. Mm -hmm. How do I find if this is happening in my schools? Tell me about the teacher's union and, and whatever you know about that. What do you know about social emotional learning? What, how do I talk to the school district and who do I talk to at the school to find out what my kids are being taught? That's the number one question I get. And um, as far as a network, I, I often tell people to go and listen to James Lindsay because I've learned so much from him. Uh, and His new, new discourses, uh, podcast and, and channel and uh, website is fabulous. Uh, bunch of yeah. resources. Yeah. Well, and I remember taking, uh, I did a session that the Virginia project hosted that had him mm-hmm. and I just had a journal, grabbed my pencil, and I took pages and pages of notes during that. I've learned so much because that's where I'm very thankful for those who have a lot of knowledge on all of these things, because I'm not a scholar. I'm a mom. Hmm. And I didn't have, I I did, I had not known much about Karl Marx even Hmm. growing up or even in my bachelor's degree. I did not know much about Marx or Engels. It was not on the radar, Um, all of these things. And so I've been thankful to learn from those who have a lot of knowledge on this. Mm -hmm. A lot of what I have learned, I've either learned from others in this effort or late at night, I read. And I, I research documents from UNESCO or from these various organizations, or I look into Castle. So as far as different groups, I mean, there are so many different groups out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is important to plug in. I, me, me, myself, I've kind of the area of California I'm in, there's a lot of parents that are involved in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people I've known have given up on this state and they're done. So they move out of state. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but Hmm. yeah, I'd say it, there's so many, yeah, lots of different organizations, but I do think it's helpful for these groups to come together and figure out what, what we can do. Yeah. So you're doing all this research, you're, you're producing that into a podcast. Do you also have a journal or uh, some sort of blog where you can, uh, you're exposing these things too, or is it mainly through Twitter and, and talkie talkies? (laughs) 
<laughs> it, so far, it's been those two. Yep. I've been encouraged to start a Substack, and um, <laughs> I have an editor's brain when I write Benjamin. So I'm the type to write in a race and write in a race. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. My my Substack I'll be putting out there soon. Hopefully, I've got some things to put out there okay. from the research because there's a lot that I found. And it's, it's a bit overwhelming at times. Mm -hmm. It's like a fire hose. Yeah. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, it can be disheartening, uh, because of the content and also the amount of work and then also just how fast it's spreading. Um, so, uh, we kind of need to network mm -hmm. and, uh, also unplug when, uh, things get too heated. Speaking of which, do you have a hidden talent or like a special hobby that you don't mind sharing with the internet? Like you, you, you just have a perfect souffle that you make or like a like <laughs> garden project where you're doing these trellises that are based on the Mandelbrot set or something like that. Hmm. I've got a few hobbies. Um, one, we grow a berries, which not everybody knows about a berries. Um, hmm. They're, they're a hybrid berry that looks like a blackberry. And then um, we, we jam. And actually this month, June, oh. the berries are uh, getting there. They're almost ripe. And sometimes we also go to a farm and we pick about 40 pounds of berries and then we jam. I've been making jam since I was huh. probably started learning when I was little, eight years old. Okay. Mm hmm. And one time we were encouraged to enter it into the fair and we got first prize. Oh, nice. Yeah. Are you going to do that this year? <laughs> uh, you know like... what? We <laughs> we don't enter it into the fair anymore because we don't want so much jam to go to waste. <laughs> oh, so <yeah>. good. <laughs> they, all the judges take their sampling yeah. and then the jar stays there. It's not refrigerated and. So, uh, one, one time was good, but typically, yeah. 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 Well, you, now you, all you have to do is, uh, you can now forevermore, you can put award-winning jam. <laughs> it's your award-winning yeah. jam. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, right. do you have like a, a yield? Do you guys try to get like a certain amount every year? Do you have like, you have your 80 jar, um, challenge or something like that? Well, we do different size jars. So there's okay. bigger jars. There's yeah, yeah. yeah. The smaller. Yeah. And then, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how this year's crop goes. But so yeah. far, it's been nice to see. It's, yeah, it's looking good. So. Sounds fun. Sounds mm -hmm. like it's going to be very aromatic, too, when the time <laughs> comes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, Kelly, it was very nice to meet you. Um, you're doing some impressive work, and I'm glad to facilitate um, making more people aware of what you're what you're working on and then also what you're pointing to um, awareness mm -hmm. is one step of the process, not by any means the, the last, but pretty close to the first step. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>